Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, Ben, we are back. We are talking about DNC 23 through 26 today. And man, what what what's some great sections? I love these. In section 23, we have a revelation that's seven verses that talks to five men. And I think that's kind of funny funny that it covers so much ground so quickly. But I call this the no condemnation section because the Lord tells everybody that, hey, you're not under condemnation. And that, you know, no matter who you are, that's got to be a great message to hear. But in section 24, we have the Lord talking to Joseph and Oliver specifically about the missionary work and them going out and starting to to be missionaries and being patient and and how this is going to start uh, working. Because, you know, in section 20, we have the creation of the church. You know, the, the church is now finally a thing. They had a, a big, a big boost in numbers. They had six people, the original that day when they organized the church. And so now I can imagine Joseph and Oliver sitting around thinking, well, it's, it's been organized. Now what? Now what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So, and so you kind of sit around like, well, what are we supposed to do with this thing? We've got this really cool book over here that we've gotten published and that is ready to go forward. And we have seen angels and had some visitations and okay. And and so these sections really do kind of take on a flavor that if we start to ask ourselves what they were dealing with and to see them in in a day and age where this stuff isn't laid all out for them, you know, they're not, they're not sitting here knowing the, the end and working into it. They are having to invent this every single day as they're going through. So this whole restoration of the gospel is a daily event as they are trying to figure out where they're going to go next. You know, in these sections, Kirtland is not even a thing. They, they don't know they're going to be moving states. They don't know they're going to be eventually going to Missouri. They don't, they don't know eventually to Utah. So when you look at a lot of these revelations, you have to see that they don't have these things in mind yet. All they know is they're there in New York they're there in Pennsylvania, that they've been in this region and they've been working and trying to figure out how they're going to build this thing. And the Lord brings them step by step. So in section 25, we move and it's a revelation given to Emma. And man, there's a lot to talk about here. I'm really excited about that. And then finally in section 26, we have two verses. And so <laughs> section 26 will be, will be fun to get into. But just to start off, I wanted to start with section 23 because that's where, where we're starting. And to and the Lord's message to Oliver, because this is this section is delivered to Oliver, Hiram, Samuel Smith, Joseph's brother, Joseph himself, and then to Joseph Knight. And Joseph Knight is not told that he's not under condemnation, but he's also not told that he is. So Joseph <laughs> but he is told that he has to take up his cross and to pray vocally. And it's his duty to unite with the true church. So 
Joseph Knight does have a very specific message given to him, but to Oliver, Hiram, Samuel, and Joseph, we have this message, you are not under condemnation. And you've, you've got to wonder why. Why is this a message that the Lord is giving to each and every one of these men? What's the context that they're living in? What's, what's the social atmosphere? What's the religious atmosphere? What's, what's going on? Because, you know, this is the time of the second great awakening. These revivalists are going out there in their areas and they're doing, you know, they've been doing it for years now, um, decades even, where you have these big tent revivals and all these preachers are going out there and they're getting the ecstasy of God going on and people are talking in tongues and falling over and their preachers are not formally trained in, in a lot of the cases. You know, that was those more formally trained ministers who are, who actually have gone to the university and have really followed through on all of these, uh, the orthodox way of doing things. They're over in the city centers, you know, back in, you know, in the New England area and in Boston and, and back in the major cities. But out here in the, in the, these regions where civilization is kind of <laughs> just starting, as it were. These these guys are getting some real frontier preachers who are out there just getting these crowds going. And in a lot of that rhetoric, you have these messages of repenting and converting or you're going to be condemned to hell. And so mm-hmm. you can see here with just this fledgling church, it's just starting off. And you, Joseph has already had a lot of experiences. You know, he had the 116 pages. He had the Martin Harris episode. He's experienced those traumas that we've already talked about in previous episodes. But in this particular case, how comforting is it for these men who are now they're trying to work out a a new theology and a new way of seeing God, a new way of being able to be brought into this? Are, Are they okay with God? Is God okay with them? How is this relationship moving forward? And you can see like what we talked about with Oliver and John the Baptist and about his just this this experience that he has where he's in, in just enraptured by this feeling of love and of awe and of this heavenly messenger that comes to him. And to see these kinds of experiences starting to happen, then when we come back here to the scriptures and we hear, behold, thou art blessed and art under no condemnation. You know, I, I, and I love that, that he says, blessed art thou, thou art blessed. You know, this goes back to the Beatitudes for me, this blessedness, this state of, if I were here, if I were on the earth, I would be doing this as well. You know, that whole blessedness of the Beatitudes, it, it really is this statement that if God was here, if God was embodied, if God was here present with us, this is what God would be doing. And so to to recognize and to get that kind of message from from God that you're doing what I would be doing as well. We talked about last week about how this is God's work. I think it was last week. No, it may have been two weeks before or whenever we did section uh, 14. But this is God's work. Jesus Christ has already been out doing his own work. He's already gone out. He's tilled the field. He's weeded it. He's planted it. He's nourished it. He's irrigated it. He's gone through and he's weeded it again. It's grown. He's taken care of it. And now all he's asking us to do is to come be it's the a, fun part. The fun part, right? <laughs> it's like it's like it's like that story of the hen that goes out and you know you know wanting to make bread, right? Nobody wants to help make you know do any of the work, but everybody wants to eat it. And basically, Christ is coming along. He's saying, "Hey, guys, the fun part's about ready to be here. Do you want to come in with me to do this with me? This is my work. This is not your work. 
this is not your ah, what's the word I'm looking for you know when, you know when we get involved with a lot of projects we put our identity into it as though when people reject you they're actually rejecting you and this is a message that goes out through all the whole scripture and I have in mind I'm going all the way back to the Old Testament into Samuel when when uh, when the people reject Samuel as the prophet and then he goes to the Lord and he's like Lord they, they don't want a prophet anymore they want a king and it, the text doesn't explicitly say this, but we kind of, we can really infer this from the way that the Lord responds. He's like, but they have not rejected you. They rejected me that I should rule over them. And so you can almost see this little flavor that even Samuel, the prophet in the Old Testament, he's like, Lord, they've rejected me. And the Lord's like, you think too highly. How about you, Samuel? And yeah, it's not about <laughs> you. You think too highly of your place. This is not your work. This is not your glory. This this is what I am doing. You be Samuel and you let me be God. So to see Oliver here, behold, thou art blessed and are under no condemnation, but beware of pride, lest thou shouldest enter into temptation. You know, that pride from President Benson's talk in uh, 1989, you know, beware of pride, that very famous talk. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he talks about enmity. Enmity, you know, pride is the universal sin. It, it's it's enmity between us and God. It's placing our will against God. It's it's the false self declaring that it is the true reality against the the the, the true self. So the false self is reigning supreme and is burying the, the knowledge of the true self. And so you can see the Lord here saying, "Listen, you are blessed. You are being what I would be doing here. You are not under condemnation. But keep doing this and realizing that." That false self can come out to play. Don't let it come out to play. <laughs> keep it in keep it in the place where it's supposed to be. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit to the that concept here in this section. You know, the section heading talks about how they had again inquired this concept of knowing what their duties were. Right here, know their respective duties, and so the the prophet inquired and and received these separate little revelations for each of them. It is interesting here that uh, the Lord explicitly goes through them by name and and says you're under no condemnation. It would be kind of cool to like have a piece of paper and like be able to show people it says nope look the Lord said <laughs> I'm not sinning so you know <laughs> but beware of pride right <laughs> but so I, I do kind of see this when when the Lord says Oliver you're you're under no condemnation I actually. I'm seeing this more as for other people because for me, the greatest confirmation a person can receive isn't like some revelation that Joseph Smith gets and you write down, right? It would be the spirit telling you that you're under no condemnation, much more powerful than, you know, a written word. But if you see a revelation or you, you see a revelation that is received about another person and the Lord tells them, they're under no condemnation. That's sort of like a like a confidence booster, right? And I see this whole section here of the Lord going through one by one and telling them they're under no condemnation as a way of bringing them into unity, saying, "Hey, I'm not condemning you, any of you. You shouldn't be condemning each other. And if you are, you know, you're putting yourselves kind of above me, right? So it's kind of a way of the Lord dispelling some contention, potential contention. I don't know if there was any before among them where. If the Lord's not condemning them, they shouldn't be condemning each other, right? And so that's actually where I see the power in this beyond 
the individuals receiving this and being like, oh, I'm under no condemnation. I expect they personally received that assurance from the spirit beforehand. And this is actually, you know, a proclamation to others from the Lord. And so I kind of like how that you know, how that comes out in there. You were talking about the context of this being this, the second great awakening, this America where there's a lot of preaching of fire and brimstone, you know, it reminded me of uh, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yeah. <laughs> you guys talked about that. Yeah. So like this sermon and, and, and everybody should read it. This is a part of, of great American literature. It's just, regardless of like anything else, you know, everybody needs to read sinners in the hands of an angry God as a part of American literature. Right, because you read it and you're gonna you're gonna understand more some of that American religion mentality in some ways, right? And so I see that here, you know, of, the, of this this God that comes down in condemnation, and that is so, you know, such a contrast to the God that we're seeing, and in at least this section here, but obviously elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, where he comes in and tells them they're under no condemnation and then builds them up and, and sends them out uh, to preach. And so I I really like that there. You were talking about President Benson and his talk with uh, Beware of Pride uh, and enmity. You know, one of the things he says about enmity is that it's, or the central feature of pride is enmity towards God and our fellow men. And so enmity is that narrative under which the whole uh, concept of an enemy, you know, it's the same root. Uh, arises and and that's where that that comes from the pride and so uh, we see another person as an enemy when pride is involved and that's where I think uh, we talk about pride being sort of the the universal sin or sort of the root of of a lot of these of sin because that is wherein that enemy narrative begins and that's what the beatitudes lead us away from away from that enemy narrative towards uh, some, the way of Christ instead. So it's just, it's a completely different concept. Yeah, it'd be really hard to go out and try to do all the harvesting that the Lord has been preparing and perceive the wheat that you're harvesting as your enemy. <laughs> <to go out. laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's a discussion of that sort of in this next section, right? <laughs> right. It's just, it's it's weird. But weird's not the right word. It's beautiful how the Lord is preparing these people's minds. These men being products of their time, growing up with the language and the culture and the religiosity of that's around them, and the Lord is taking their knowledge and understanding and leading them to a better way. And I, and I think we need to really narrow in on that concept because a lot of the way that they talk is in reference to the day and age in which they lived. And sometimes when we come into the text... You know, there is some that I have to admit that you and I both do in reading this, and, and we are reading into it like a kind, benevolent God in showing that. And that may not have been exactly their experience while they're experiencing it, but from our perspective and looking back on him, and then being able to see the patterns of God throughout all of Scripture and even in their lives, it's like hindsight's twenty twenty in a lot of regards. And so when we come back and we can start to see the patterns of how God was dealing with them. And then how they had to wrestle with that. And sometimes they were talking about God in particular ways and they were bringing out the nature of God in particular ways that really reflected a lot of their own bias. But that always happens. And that's always going to happen. And yet the Lord is patient and he speaks to us in our language and our understanding. So this isn't a 
I don't think that this is a stumbling point to the record. I think it's one of the very points of the record. It's the point when we get to look at the men and the women who are going through these experiences and how they worked out their relationship with God. And sometimes when we see such great men as Joseph and such great women as Emma and these other men that were surrounding it and other women that were surrounding it, we begin to almost like deify them in a type of way. And maybe, and maybe that they were more superhuman and more spiritual than maybe that they were even were in these moments. But, and that's not to downplay who and what they were or to be able to cast shade on them, but it's to recognize that I'll give a personal experience. I keep two journals and in one journal, I keep kind of more of like a history. It's very Nephi-esque. <laughs> I keep, I keep a journal that's kind of like more spiritual stuff. And you I, got your large plates of Shiloh <laughs> and your small plates of Shiloh. <laughs> it's kind of worked out that way. I really wasn't intending to being like Nephi in this regard, but it really did end up kind of being that way. I should go out and label it that. I think I will. I'm going to pick a note. <laughs> like large plates, right? Uh, small plates. Okay. Okay. So let it be written. So let it be done. And so – in my records of my records, man, I'm even talking this now. So <laughs> in my journal, when I'm sitting here with my journals and I've been, gone back over and I've, and I've reread the, the more spiritual aspect, you know, the, the, my spiritual small place. When I've read those, I have noticed that there's a particular way that I write that even though it was my experience, I look back on those moments and I'm like, man, that Shiloh guy was a really spiritual guy. How can I ever live up to that guy? And it's my record. I'm the one that wrote it down in my own journal, right? <laughs> it's like, and thus and behold, verily, you know, this happened. <laughs> and when I, I, it, it took me a minute to, to really recognize what was going on in the text, but I wrote it because I want my children and my children's children and my children's 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 so on and so forth. I want them to be able to look back on this and I want them to be able to know that their father had experiences with God. And Ben, I know you've shared with me, you have, you have ancestors that have written down their own record that you've spent a lot of time going over that I know has been meaningful for you. And you've gleaned a lot from in, in their own experiences. And so as I, as I've written this, I've looked back on my own record and I've realized, you know what? I think I might need to start to reevaluate how I'm writing down my record for my posterity because how I'm writing it down makes it look like I am more than what I really am. I need, I need to be, I, I want to focus it so that they really know that I did believe in God. I really did have experiences with God, but in that tenacity, what I end up writing down makes it seem like I was so other spiritual, superhuman or otherworldly because I wanted to kind of cut out all the fluff in the, in the, in the text. Channeling Nephi. Yeah. Channeling Nephi. Right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so in that whole thing, I took that back to the scriptures and I started reading these people throughout the scriptures and it's not to downplay who and what they were, but it's to recognize I did this myself in that the way that I interpreted my own record showed me that I, I seem to be far, far, far more assured and far more like in tune and absolutely there with God in every way th than I really was. Yes, I was acknowledging God. Yes, I was having spiritual experiences. Yes, I was experiencing those things. Yes, I acknowledged them and I put them down in the record and they're there. 
but how I tell my story matters. So in that regard, that's kind of how I'm looking at the, the scriptures here. It's to be able to see who and what these people really were and, to, and for us to recognize as Latter-day Saints that these people were not living lives so superhumanly or spiritually superhuman. They weren't superheroes of the, of the spirit, as it were. There's no difference between who and what they were and who and what you are and who and what I am. We just have to recognize that how they wrote their story as well had some certain nuance to it. Yeah, I would say that scripture isn't only contextual. So like context can be important for scripture and can help us understand it at a certain level. But there's another level of analysis of scripture that isn't so contextual. It's really subjective. And, you know, we can look at it in the context of our own life and sort of pull that out and and overlay it onto our life rather than looking at only the context in, in which it was given. You know, there's arguments to be made for for either way. And uh, I I don't think one is necessarily more valid than the other. I, I see value in, in both of those ways. And there's more ways of, of reading scripture as well, not just those, but but just in this this line of thinking that we're talking about here, that the scripture isn't only about the context that it's given in. That is an important way to understand it, but it's not the only way to understand it. And so, you know, you were talking about going back and reading your experiences and you could you could look at and know the context that you were reading them in and and be like, oh, that's what I was understanding and feeling and, and experiencing at the time. But because of who I am now, I overlay that on the experience that I'm reading and I actually learn something different from that experience than I did at the time, right? And so uh, the same thing is with this. You know, we we can read through these experiences and gain understanding, subjective understanding now that maybe wasn't even in the mind or understanding or or experience of what these people were going through at at the time. And I think that is what defines it as scripture when you can do that. Otherwise, it's just you know somebody recording their experience, which has its own value. But I think one of the things that, like I said, makes it quote unquote authentic scripture is that it can can be used in in these different ways. And maybe maybe I'm overanalyzing that. Maybe everything that we read can be done in that way. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but at least scripture can. And and that's why that's what I would call scripture is something that could be could be used in in both of those ways. I I do chuckle a little here at Joseph Knight's revelation. It says I manifest unto you, Joseph Knight, by these words, that you must take up your cross in the which. So this concept of taking up the cross, there was a discussion about this in in one of the uh, Facebook groups the other day, you know, what people thought about what taking up your cross meant. I I liked all of the responses to it. I thought they were really good and and interesting. Um, But they all were these like really profound concepts of, of, you know, uh, suffering and, and, you know, maintaining maintaining our, our relationship with God and 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 following Christ and and all these these different things you know I liked one I think it was from Roar somebody quoted him basically forgiving reality stuff like that and so I chuckle here that Joseph Knight's version of taking up his cross is praying vocally <laughs> <laughs> it's like man that must have been something really rough for him to do pray vocally like <laughs> the Lord's like you know this is something really hard for you to do 
That's what I want you to do. This is going to make you a better person. <laughs> this is going to going to bring out the true Joseph Knight. Is is if you will pray vocally, and uh, I just I, I chuckle at that a little bit. But then you know I look at myself and I think you know there's some really silly things that sort of the spirit calls me to do as well. Maybe from time to time that are like, hey, this this will really bring out who you are. It may seem silly, but uh, but this is. This is what you do to take up your cross. And so it's, it's kind of this reminder that, that there is a lot of subjectivity here, right? In, into how the spirit invites us to act. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like that a lot because I, I, I've been involved in some of those same discussions about the cross and they do, they get really deep, really fat and they're beautiful discussions. And I, and I love them dearly. And I love that quote about forgiving reality. Um, man, that gets into some, just some really. I mean, I've hit more walls. Just, I don't know. I don't know how else better to describe that. I'm just going along with my day, and then like the, a quote will come along, or an idea will come along, and it just like stops me in my tracks. Like I hit a wall, and I'm like, oh, like gut, you know, sucks, <laughs> sucks me in my gut, and I'm just like, oh, I got to think about that for a while. But yeah, I, I love, I love this. I love what you <laughs> take up your cross. I mean, literally going to Calvary for him was praying vocally. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he must have really not liked that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love what comes out in, in these kinds of discussions. You know, going to section 24, it starts off, Behold, that was called and chosen. This is to Joseph and Oliver, by the way. Behold, that was called and chosen to write the Book of Mormon and to my ministry. And I have lifted thee up out of thine afflictions and have counseled thee that thou hast been delivered from all thine enemies. And thou hast been delivered from the powers of Satan and from darkness. It, Satan doesn't get mentioned very often. And when he does, mm-hmm. it's sometimes those moments I, I take a little bit of extra time to pause to really see what's going on. Because for that to be the focus, for that to even be invoked, really means something. And for the Lord to talk about Satan, and one of the things that I, one of the interesting parts of this discussion about Satan is the fact that it's a title like Christ. Right. Lucifer was a, right. Lucifer was the, the angel, but Satan was the title that was given to him. And so this title is one that we also don in certain aspects of our psychology and certain aspects of our, of our, the way that we act and some of the belief systems that we have. You know, this comes into, you know, Satan, we've talked to quite a bit, is the is our adversary. Now, he's not just any adversary, but he's the accusing adversary. So it's like this, it's like this setting in a court of law where you are It's a role. Yeah, it's a role, like, like a prosecuting attorney kind of a thing. Where you're being accused of doing X, Y, and Z. And Jesus Christ is the advocate with the Father. And so it's like Jesus Christ and the Father are actually your advocates. And so it's not Jesus Christ is the advocate to the Father. It's like the Father's the judge. Right. It's that he's the advocate with the Father. And so when we see that he's been delivered from the powers of Satan and from darkness, I think this is just fascinating on so many levels because it's not just that Satan is actively, you know, Lucifer is actively trying to thwart him, which he is. It's not just that the angels of, you know, fallen angels are coming after Joseph, which they are. But there's also this other component of Joseph Smith and Oliver in and of themselves 
them wrestling out their own inner demons, the, the own self that they have to within themselves, as as if there was no Lucifer or any other fallen angel around. There's some things that, of this Satan characteristic that they would still have to grapple with, that we all have to grapple with. Mm-hmm. And the Lord is coming down, and there's no differentiation here between who really who he's talking about. And so that's what I love about this kind of verse is, is it is very general. And so as I've, I've read it, it's actually changed meanings for me several times when I've read it because sometimes in my life, I, I really feel like something's coming after me, like an external force is coming after me. And I've read these verses and I'm like, the Lord's there. The Lord's got me. And then there's other times when I feel like that, that, that force of darkness is kind of coming in from within my own life, kind of from like an interior position. And it's in those moments when I'm like, yeah, the Lord's got me still. And so no matter whether it's an internal or an external factor, the Lord still has us. I've always thought it a very profound moment when Satan is commanded to depart in, in the various scriptural contexts or temple or, or whatever. And, and to, to consider that, right? What that means for us as existentially as individuals for Satan to have been cast out of our presence, right? Symbolically, but then, you know, it's, it's this, the, the whole point of ordinance is it's pointing us to this experience. Hey, you can have an experience of Satan being cast out of your presence, of this accuser no longer having power or influence over you. And man, that's, that's really something. Yeah. Right. I like how this verse sort of points to that. Yeah, it, it liberates us. It is a message that no matter where we're at, the Lord always comes to liberate. Moving into section here in verse 2, Nevertheless, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. Nevertheless, go thy way and sin no more. You know that, that phrase, go thy way and sin no more, very, very uh, reflective of the, of the woman taken in adultery and about the story that we've talked about there. Woman, where are thine accusers? Where is Satan? You know, she looks around, nowhere, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Right? Go thy way and sin no more. Thou art not excusable in thy transgressions. You know, we've talked a lot about the always already worthy, you know, that discussion and that God made us in his image. That's who we really are. That's who we are right now. And so it, it's taken on a kind of a different perspective for me in that in our language, we talk about becoming something in that we have a little bit of light right now and we're growing and we're growing brighter and brighter and brighter as though our being in itself is, is becoming this being of greater light. Is substantially changing. Like it, the substance of it is changing. Yeah, like the substance is changing. As if, I mean, I mean that, as if we talk about it as if the substance there are the nature of the thing is changing. Correct. But you know, what you're getting at, I think is, is the discussion we had before with like Michelangelo and the marble, right? You know, it's the substance of the thing isn't changing. It's how it's oriented and what's being revealed about it. Yeah. What's I love that. What's being revealed about it. That's a great way of putting it where it is that we're carving away everything from the exterior, everything that's not and revealing what has always already been on the inside. And so it's this, thou art not excusable in thy transgressions, always being worthy, that already always worthy. We still live in our false self. 
that covering that we place over us. We still live in that. And sin is the product. Sin and transgression are products of that false self. Everything that we, all the identities, the layers and, and the egos and, the, and all of these things that we put over ourselves as if that's the true self, that's the origin of those things. And as we begin to repent and see God differently and we see ourselves differently, we begin to see what we really are. And the scales fall from our eyes to where we begin to recognize that the true divinity is within us, that God truly did make us in his image. And we begin to recognize what we always already were and have and always already will be. And, and until we repent and come to that acknowledgement and begin to, to really let that sink in and to see ourselves differently and not, not just rationally see ourselves, but to be able to come into these experiences with God where we can start to internalize this self-awareness that it's it just like, and yeah, going back to that hallway of prisoners, you know, with Michelangelo, that we are still encased in the tomb of our false self and none of that ego. So while we're not excusable with the, with the transgression, the Lord is never going to validate the false self. He's, he's, he will never give the false self any dignity as though it were our true identity. He made us in his image, and that's who he talks to. That's who he interacts with. That's what he's bringing out. That's what he's showing forth. That's his work and glory to bring to pass the awareness of what of what we always already were. That actually fits really well with the overall theology that Joseph Smith uh, develops and reveals over the course of his life. And, uh, you know, we kind of have that culminating moment of the King Follett discourse where he talks about the nature of God and, you know, that he brings up the notion that God has always been God and, and so forth. And, and, and then just sort of like opens it up a little bit. And I think to this point, to this concept that you're talking about where, yes, God has always been God, but, you know, he's, he's also had the same experiences that we've had. And so, uh, I think this way of understanding it really actually resolves the questions surrounding the eternal nature of God and then our eternal nature as his children and really gets at the heart of of sort of the the more profound so to speak theology that that Joseph Smith really tried to expound throughout his life right you know in verse 4 it says but if they receive thee not talking about so Joseph and Oliver being called to go on on missions, as it were, to go out and to preach into Colesville and Fayette and Manchester. But if they receive thee not, I will send upon them a cursing instead of a blessing. So this is one of those scriptures that we grapple with about a God that comes out to curse and a God that comes out to to proactively punish. How do we deal with these things? And 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 we've done this quite a bit, where I can't see. <laughs> I can't see a God that Joseph and Oliver get up and maybe Joseph and Oliver are on their A game and someone woke up and, and they just weren't feeling, or maybe someone intentionally chose not to. And God's like, that was your one choice. You didn't, you didn't do it right then and there. Guess what? You're cut off forever. And now just you're cursed. Right. And so now, yeah. and, and we tend to kind of think in things in this term, I'm sorry, in these terms, but I don't think that's what's going on. Because that doesn't, 
<laughs> just doesn't have any utility. There's no purpose. A God whose entire work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, to be able to take two obscure people, send them into a town, have a few people not recognize it right off the bat, and to be like, your chance is over and done. That was your one shot. Now you're going to hell, right? And that just, that doesn't, that doesn't really mold with the whole other broader narrative. And so once we begin to see that these cursings and these blessings, you know, the blessedness was, you know, this is what God would be in doing if he were here. Now, obviously, there's some pe- there's some of us, and me included at time, you know, <laughs> most of the time, where I- I'm not in that direct, that direct, you know, in tuneness with, with God. And I think there are many times, you know, I, I think of the Book of Mormon with Amulek, where he was like, I was called many times. He says, and I didn't listen and I wouldn't hear. And man, if that, I, I resonate with that message. I mean, there's, there's so many times where the Lord's like, go and do this. And I'm like, no. And the Lord's like, go and do this. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> and the Lord, and the man, the Lord's patience with me. I, I and, and usually, usually when it comes the, that third time, I, I, I'm a third time follower. You know, that usually takes me about three times. Like Peter, that whole, you know, Peter, lovest thou me? Yeah. Hey, do you love me? Yeah. Do you love me? And Peter's like, oh, yeah, I get that. See, I feel that story because that's me. That's what kind of person I am. I wish I would, and I'm working on becoming that first, that first, uh, prompting actor. I'm getting, I'm getting you better at it. I'm not, I'm not there. And man, it, it is a, the Lord and I have an understanding and we, and we've, t- I've talked with him a lot about this. And so we've had a lot of discussions back and forth, but in this particular way, and, and I guess maybe that's one of the reasons why I read this verse a little bit different that I sometimes do need a few interactions with God first. I do need a few things to happen first. And so for this abruptness to be like coming in one, one, one and done and you're and that's it it doesn't sit with my experiences with the compassion and the mercy of god the universal compassion and mercy that i've seen with in all of scripture yeah i mean elsewhere in here i think it talks about condemnation uh, officially you know or, or um, explicitly in this verse it, it talks about a cursing instead of a blessing and there, there's there's so many ways we could talk about that in in the context of a loving God, you could say, well, he's he's pronouncing reality. They reject him. There's just going to be certain consequences of that that are what they are. And or you could say, well, the 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 curse is a matter of perspective. From their perspective, it may be a curse, but actually, the way that the Lord's working in their life, what this uh, what this quote unquote curse uh, will do is actually persuade them to uh, come about into a more humble life so that uh, they do arrive at a point where they are you know more receptive to reality and 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 who God is and so it's it in the short term has a perception of a curse but in the long term is actually a great blessing and and this person will be able to look back on it as such and they won't you know that curse will have been turned into a blessing because of of how things full you know unfolded and so forth so it, a lot of these things are a matter of perspective and and I think um at least for me if I look back in my life that's the way it is a lot of times uh, what's the story that was told about 
um, you know, and, and I, I don't remember enough of it to even tell it, but I know Christopher Hurtado tells it, you know, the man that like something happens with his horses and people are like, oh, that's terrible. And he's like, well, you know, maybe. And then something happens with his son and, and they're like, oh, that's great. And he says, maybe, you know, I don't know if you could tell the story. But, but the, the point being that like, you know, pronouncing from our perspective something as a blessing or a curse, you know, isn't isn't a very easy thing to do objectively what the lord calls us to do is just follow him and and you know the the consequences or fallout of that is is not the important part yeah yeah that's a that's a great way to to summarize that i i've got nothing <laughs> after that that's great in, in verse 7 we go on and thou shalt devote all thy service in zion and in this thou shalt have strength be patient in afflictions for thou shalt have many but endure them for lo, I am with thee even unto the end of thy days. You know, when when I read that this time, that was one of those moments that just I, it kind of stopped me in my tracks. Because again, Joseph doesn't know. We do. We have the knowledge of what Joseph's life is going to be. We we have the knowledge and the blessing of being able to see how everything rolled out after Joseph, after the persecutions, after the the exodus after the 150 years that have gone on since. And we're able to look back with kind of a 2020 vision to see everything was going to be okay. But at this point, Kirtland's not even on his radar. He doesn't even know anything about Kirtland. He doesn't know anything about Sydney, Sydney Rigdon. He doesn't know anything about any of these people. He hasn't built the temple. He hasn't done the school of the prophets yet. Missouri, Missouri and all the persecutions that they're going to have there, that's not even – that's he doesn't know about Liberty Jail. Maybe. Liberty – yeah. Oh, my goodness. Liberty Jail, Zion's Camp, Carthage, none of that, right? And yet the Lord is here. All he's known is 10 years before he saw God. He saw an angel, and he's had the experiences of translating the Book of Mormon. That's been pretty harrowing. He lost the pages. He had some experiences there with losing the pages. And now he's coming into a part where they just organized a church. Joseph has no formal training, but he's a leader of a church. And this is very indicative of the Second Great Awakening, of people starting churches without any formal training. That's that's kind of okay in the time and age in which he's starting this. But we have to give Joseph some leniency here but also to recognize to be patient in afflictions for thou shalt have many. And just to sit with that for a minute, to really reflect on who and what Joseph Smith was and of how he endured everything that he went through. Man, he made a lot of mistakes. But man... Look at what he succeeded in. That the Lord takes those those things, those weaknesses, and he turns them into these magnificent blessings. And it was because they were patient in their afflictions, it was because that they were able to endure them, that the Lord brought about the, the things that he did. And then in verse 9, And in temporal labors thou shalt not have strength, for this is not thy calling. You know, coming from the Smith family, his parents were very 
very, uh, we, we used pride here in kind of a negative connotation. And even President Benson has said there's no righteous use of the word pride. But it, when we look at the Smith parents, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack, they were very proud people. And I mean that in a positive way, where they were very dignified. They had a wholesome view of self-worth. They were, they stood with dignity, especially Lucy Mack. Man, she was, she was, a, she was, she was a fireball. And Joseph Smith Sr., though, had had multiple setbacks in his life financially. And, you know, for instance, Saints begins with the year without a summer. Right when he, he he put all of his eggs in one basket and none of them hatched and that year came along and he invested everything in that summer and it didn't happen. And so all of his everything and he didn't have anything to show for it. And once they got down to Palmyra, they made a series of mistakes and you know, they grew a little bit bigger. Sometimes their pride in, in the negative way did get a hold of them a little bit. Um, you know, when they, when they built the frame house, they, they shouldn't have built the frame house. They shouldn't have invested in that. They, they should have invested it back into their property and paid their mortgage. That would come back to bite them. So there were financial decisions that they made that were poor. Joseph Smith Sr. had turned to alcohol in many times. And, and so they had these problems. And Joseph Smith Sr. growing up and the boys growing up, having this role model in front of them in their father, they always respected him. They always respected him, even though he was not, quote unquote, the kind of the archetypal father of the successful father of the region, they always respected him. And we know from how much the Joseph was counseled about the plates not to even think about their monetary value and the financial gain that they would get from it. We know that the Smith family were struggling and really trying to kind of make their mark. You know, Richard Bushman talks a little bit about this in Rough Stone Rolling. And yet, this is this is one of those things that the Lord really comes in and hammers with Joseph over and over because he's coming from a family that's a very dignified family, a very proud family, a family that really sees the the value and the worth of their of their family. And for Joseph to be told, "And in temporal labors thou shalt not have strength, for this is not thy calling," for Joseph to be completely diverted from that, that's a big deal. That's a really really big deal. This means that Joseph is coming from a worldview and a family view of this digni dignified family where, where the Lord is literally telling Joseph, don't take care, don't worry about money anymore. Money is not going to be the concern of your life. In other words, you're, you're probably going to live in abject poverty. But You're never going to be rich. You're never going to be rich. Right. And so all of the metrics by which the world measures things and measures status and measures success, you're not going to get it. You know, he, Joseph Smith tried anyway. <laughs> you know, we talked about <laughs> mistakes that he's made, that he made. You know, he, he did many things where he tried to sort of uh, get ahead or, or, you know, make a living, um, establish something. And, and the motivations for that, you know, all could be explained away one way or another. But, um, you know, he does seem to at times forget this point that the Lord brings up here you're not going to be uh successful so to speak in in uh uh temporal labors you know he it, one of the most notable would have been the the Kirtland uh society uh bank yep wasn't really a bank you know that just crashed and burned and uh, caused all kinds of issues 
um, for him. You know, he tried to invest in different lands and and you know did all these sort of things. And there's there's all uh, surrounding it was all sort of his his um, design and purpose to create an inheritance for the saints, right? But he was many times very focused on the, those temporal matters and just never really, really worked out for him that well. He he was able to, for a time, secure some things, you know, and, and able to build Nauvoo, but ultimately the debts came due on that as well. And that, that we don't talk about that much, but that's actually one of the main reasons that, that Nauvoo didn't work out was because there was so much debt involved with uh, with getting all the lands that uh, the church just couldn't couldn't shoulder it. So um, anyway, that's that's part of what happened there. <laughs> now, and Ben, on uh, I know you had sent me a link and you'd been uh, researching because once they go out on missions, the Lord basically gives them a lot of commandments to how they're going to go about their these mission experiences. And we get here to verse 15 where it says, and, and whatsoever place you shall enter and they receive you not in my name, you shall leave a cursing instead of a blessing by casting off the dust of your feet against them as a testimony and cleansing your feet by the wayside. All right. So you, you'd, uh, you'd done some, a little bit of research. So tell me about that. Yeah. Um, research is probably too long a word for it, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you'd been interested in it anyway. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was really interesting. Um, so this concept comes from a new Testament, right? So, Christ tells his apostles to go out and and uh, to preach, and wherever people don't receive them, they they're supposed to leave and and uh, wipe the dust from their feet or cast the dust from their feet. And this is a testimony. So this uh, this idea comes from the New Testament. But what to me was so interesting about that fact is that there are extremely few Christian denominations that practice or even discuss this doctrine if you want to call it a doctrine or or practice or imperative of Christ's instruction to his apostles in fact no denomination whatsoever as far as uh, research can tell uh, practiced it anywhere near as extensively or explicitly as the latter day saints and so it, it, it's so interesting to me um, that, that that's the case, and and it could be the um, the very strong emphasis on missionary work, you know, proselyting. There's plenty of other denominations that have that, but but none of them seem to practice it in in quite this way. But I was thinking about this. So at the in the early days of the church, you had these missionaries that were sent out that would practice this from time to time. They would go and and try to teach someone and. And the person would say, no, get out of here. I don't want to listen to you. And they go out and, and dust their feet. Sometimes it would be for, for really uh, simple things, people not, not wanting to listen to them or, or not giving them. I think one place they, um, they asked a restaurant to give them free food and the restaurant wouldn't. And so then they dusted their feet. It was like, <laughs> okay, that's a little, you know, a little intense. But so this practice was, uh, you know, as documented, was was pretty commonly used, kind of in the early days of the church, uh, and then it, it sort of died off. It became it, it had some commentary by Talmadge, um, who basically branded this as as an extreme measure um, that had very specific requirements um, in order to to perform this quote unquote ordinance. And I would call it an ordinance, but I don't remember if if he calls it that. 
And so then, then later, I think it was J. Reuben Clark that kind of came in and said uh, somewhat the same thing and said, Hey, you know, this, this really isn't, isn't appropriate or authorized except in, in very extreme cases where the spirit might direct you to do it. But it, it all kind of, um, raised this question for me of what is really the purpose or utility of this? Like, does the Lord not know? that these people rejected the gospel. So he needs to see you dusting your feet off. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, I didn't realize, uh, otherwise, you know, that guy's dusting his feet. So there we go. Um, Gabriel put an X on that door and we'll send a fireball down there here in a few weeks or something like that. You know, obviously that's not, that's not what's going on, right? That that's, that's not what's going on. I caricature, you know, made a caricature of it, but there's something else going on here. The Lord doesn't need this. This is for us. And if it's for us, what is it that this is doing for the person that is performing this ordinance? Because of the scriptures, you know, you read this and you think, okay, uh, you do this and then those people are going to be condemned and destroyed at, at the last day. Here in verse 16, it says, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall lay their hands upon you by violence, ye shall command to be smitten in my name. Now, we've talked about this word smitten, right? And if you're smitten in the name of Christ... That is, uh, that's not a violent act. That's actually a smitten by the word of God, right? That's uh, repentance. That's brought, uh, that's someone's humbled. Someone's uh, brought to, to realize, to recognize who God is. So, so that's sort of a different thing. But in any case, it says, and behold, I will smite them according to your words in mine own due time. <laughs> and uh, this is this is an interesting way of putting it because to me this is almost the Lord saying, "Hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go out and you're going to preach the gospel, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to reject you, and you won't. You're going to think now, oh, I'll be okay with that. But guess what? When you get in the moment and you're experiencing it, it's not so easy to deal with as you think right now that it is, and it's going to eat at you." And you're going to get bitter and resentful if you don't do something about it. And here's a here's a way you can deal with that if you want. <laughs> and one of the ways you can deal with it is go and perform this little ordinance and it helps you sort of dust your feet off, right? It helps you sort of uh, empty, say, hey, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. You know what? This is not my problem. I'm giving this to the Lord He's going to deal with it. He'll deal with these people. He'll figure out how to get the message of the gospel to them. I did what I could, or I felt I did what I could. It's in the Lord's hand now. It's his work. I'm not going to preoccupy myself with with doing, uh, trying to accomplish the Lord's work by a means that he hasn't ordained, you know, through contention. I'm just going to dust my feet, say, Lord, this is yours. You deal with it, and I'm going to move on. And it's kind of a, a way of releasing, right? Um, rather than a way of saying, "Oh, you're going to get yours, and you'll you you know you'll see, you know, the Lord's going to burn you all." It's actually more of a way of releasing and and allowing us to move on away from uh, any bitterness or resentment from the rejection. At, at least that's how I see it. And I think that if we were to see it that way, it could be something really significant and useful to us in a missionary context. Elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants, I mean, this is going to come up again because this is mentioned at least three or four times in the Doctrine and Covenants, this this ordinance that I keep calling it an ordinance. The Lord actually tells them to do it in secret. 
so that the other people don't see it. Well, so again, you know, this just drives the point home. This is not for them and it's not for the Lord. It's for you. It's an ordinance you can perform to allow yourself to let go, not be so upset about being rejected. Realize this is the Lord's work. You're going to let it go and you're going to move on to the next thing and the Lord's going to deal with it. I love that so much. It, it, I mean, as you're talking, there's like 10 stories that are going on. I've been trying to keep writing them all down. But, <laughs> but you know, for one of the very first stories, and we talked about this beforehand, was is in Luke 9. And it's one of my all-time favorite stories because it's when, <laughs> it's when Jesus is walking with with uh, James and John, and they're they're going to Jerusalem, or it looks like they're going to Jerusalem, and they start by a little village of Samaritans, and they go into the, and but the village wouldn't re- receive them because it looked like they were going to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along. And so James and John, <laughs> they look at Jesus and they're like, "Lord, wilt thou that we can man fire to come down from heaven and to consume these people, even as Elias did?" I, I love I love this story so much. You know, uh, I think Brigham Young said in the spirit world we could like go back in time and and look and see things at different times. This is something I'd want to go back and watch. <laughs> I want to see. I really want to see them say. This. I want to see Jesus's face. I really, really <laughs> want to see Jesus's face in this story because in my mind, since I remember reading this as a teenager in seminary, and in my entire life, I just. I've always imagined Jesus looking with us like a blank stare, like James and John, and, and and like this this really long pregnant pause, and then he turned and rebuked them and said, "Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them." And they went to another village. <laughs> I just don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so it's this whole. They were walking along, and a village didn't want to let him in. And so they turned to God and they said, let's kill them all. And Jesus is like, oh, or, or not. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> that's not what we're here for. And so it's just, you know, that, that whole like that escalated quickly. And, and, to, and to see that there is, though, you know, Ben, you and I met, and, you know, we were, we were going over a little bit about how long ago we met, how long we've known each other. But you and I met when, uh, in our college days, I was post college. You were you were just coming back. I think you had just come off your mission not too long ago. But we were doing pest control and we were doing door to door sales. Yeah. And for anybody who doesn't know, the whole door to door industry, uh, people coming by and selling you things, <laughs> if uh, if they look kind of like a a, a Mormon missionary, ninety nine percent chance is that they were within the last like two years, and they probably are going to some kind of BYU school like BYU-Idaho or BYU or somewhere in Utah, because summer sales companies, you know, who do pest control and who do security and and uh, and uh, solar, they recruit very heavily from um, BYU schools because there are people who are used to knocking doors, right? So, you know, these Mormon missionaries go out for two years. Psychologically, they've already built up the ability to deal with rejection, I guess. Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's exactly where I'm going with this. And so we we know what it's like to go out and to knock doors. And you know, I, I remember keeping tallies on doors, and we were knocking. Man, I remember those first few years. We were running door to door in a lot of cases, you know, because we knew that the more doors we knocked on, the more chance we had to sell. And and so we were hitting three hundred, sometimes four hundred doors a day. 
And if, if you, if you, if you take that back to how many minutes there are in a day, you knew how fast we were running through those neighborhoods and we would re-knock neighborhoods too. And, but the thing is, is we got a lot of no's. We got a lot of rejection and there's a certain amount of having to build up your emotional fuel tank where you can, you can really take that many no's <laughs> and, and not want to be com- completely upset with life. <laughs> Because it it does it takes a while, and in fact, even though I've I've done door to door sales for you know fifteen years, every season I get out and I have to build that fuel tank back up because getting rejection is not easy. It's it's hard being rejected. It's it, it just it's naturally human, but when you subject yourself to a vocation where that's what you're doing every single day, where you you I, I literally found out that I would knock on around a hundred doors and you know to to get a sale initially. And so I would have to get like a hundred no's to get one. And so I knew I had to knock on 400 doors a day to get four sales. And so I knew I had to get 99 rejections to find the one. And so we teach and that's how salesmen are trained is that how do you keep someone's emotional fuel tank up throughout so much rejection so that when they come to the one house that does want to buy and who is there and who is interested that you, that salesman, that person who goes to a door, it hasn't been emotionally beaten down so much that they miss the opportunity of selling the one. And and so as I was reading this, and, and that's why I loved your uh, example, just because my life experience in in training door to door salesmen and in training that kind of emotional, uh, what we call the emotional fuel tank, and of managing your emotions through the day and, th- and things you have to do to kind of keep yourself focused, because especially because I've been in the pest control industry for so long until I sold my company, the the hotter it is, the more the bugs come out. And so it, it, when it's hot, you don't want to be out there. But that's the time you need to be out there because that's when everybody's having problems. And so it's this, it's this thing that it, it's, it's horrible to be out there, but that's when it needs to happen. So we had to train people to be able to get through that. And so as you were talking there, Ben, about how the Lord's preparing a way for them because it, this is different, you know. Even though door-to-door sales, it, it kind of looks like missionary work. It's it's really not the same thing. Because when you're a mission, when you're on your mission, you know that you're not doing it for your own gain. Going door-to-door sales, you're doing it for your own gain. I was providing for my family. I was paying for my way through college and everything. But when you're on a mission, you're not working for your own glory. And but you're still getting rejected and that's still coming against you. And just like the prophet Samuel, we tend to, just because we are human, frail human beings, we tend to personalize the rejection here where we feel like they're attacking us. Just like Samuel, Lord, they rejected me. And the Lord's always like, <laughs> you're thinking too highly of yourself. This isn't your work. This is my work. I'm the one doing this. You're simply helping me out right now. And I love that idea about that brushing off the feet as a way to help the missionary to, for that person to be able to kind of overcome this. Because, yeah, reading through some of these examples about when they dusted off their feet, there was one example where like nobody showed up to the meeting and like the schoolhouse was locked and one woman, one old, one elderly lady showed up. And 
that was cause enough to be able to have someone dust their feet off for that village. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, was, I was like, wait, wait, the equivalency here is off. I mean, because we're told that, you know, when you dust your feet off, it'll be better for that, for the Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be for that city when it, when the, everything happens. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> the equivalency here just the the calculus doesn't work out so so something else has to be there and i see it as much more of a of a blessing for those to say you know what i'm just i'm I, i'm 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 not going to take the accountability and the responsibility of these people and i'm putting it into the hands of god and having god allow that ordinance and i like that you use that as an ordinance to be able to do that function and just turn it over to God to let God be God. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so I'm moving on, you know, so we get here into, into section 25 and, and, and we'll spend the bulk of the, the rest of the time here, but this is to Emma and, you know, I've had a lot of repenting to do and, and I, I don't know how much of a cultural thing it is so much as a prideful thing, but I, for whatever reason, I always had just, uh, a chip on my shoulder with Emma. I don't know why. A grudge. A grudge. <laughs> I guess it's a grudge. Um, Emma and and I don't know why. But the thing is, is Emma is such an amazing person. I've had a lot of repenting. When I see her on the other, you know, after this whole life is over, and I get up there and I see her, I'm going to sit down with her. And from everything that I've ever read about her, she's going to be the most kind-hearted, sweet, sweet person to come over. And I know, I know, she'll be. You know, if it, the record is true, she'll be the first to say. I don't know why you've been worried about what you thought about me, but but in th this <laughs> section we begin to see. Wait, who are you? Yeah, right. <laughs> just like whatever, whatever, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So in verse one, hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, while I speak unto you, Emma Smith, my daughter. For verily I say unto you, all those who receive my gospel are sons and daughters in my kingdom. And I love that because that man beatitude filter goes off again because the peacemakers are called the children of God. So those who receive my gospel are the sons and daughters of kingdom. The gospel that they're taking forward is the gospel of the beatitudes. It's it's that welcoming people into the new relationship with God. Christ gave the beatitudes to the people in in the old world. He gave it to the people in the new world. It would not it would make only it would only make sense that he would give the same message to the people in this world now and that gospel is a gospel of peace and we know that because being a peacemaker is the final beatitude before persecution so when it says here i say unto you all who receive my gospel are sons and daughters of my kingdom and emma my daughter tells a lot about the character of who she is just with that phrase alone. I think that that statement there, you know, you say that's the that's the beatitude right before the persecution. <laughs> you know, it's almost like when you're called uh, a child of God then it's like, okay, the next thing's going to happen to you is persecution. <laughs> but, you know, he says here in verse 2, revelation I given to you concerning my will, if thou art faithful and walk in the paths of virtue before me, I will preserve thy life and thou shalt receive an inheritance in Zion. You know, and that happened. That's actually quite the prophecy, quite honestly, because Emma's life was in danger multiple times, really from childbirth. Uh, she had several children die or were stillborn, and her life was in danger 
um, every time she gave birth. And then there were other circumstances, obviously, when when things weren't so good for members of the church, when when she might have been threatened. But um, you know, the fact that she would even survive um, and live as long as she did was was really quite an amazing thing. So, verse four, this to me speaks a, a, a lot about Emma's experience, and I think there's a lot of profound things here. Murmur not because of the things which thou hast not seen. For they are withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. This seems an obvious reference to the gold plates, right? Emma is here in the house with all these people that were working on the translation, and they all get to see the plates. And uh, Whitmer, what was what was her first name? Was it Mary? Mary Whitmer, yeah. Mary Mary Whitmer, you know, even Mary Whitmer gets to see the plates, <laughs> and and Emma doesn't. Emma. The wife of Joseph Smith doesn't get to see the plates. I think that's something legitimate to complain about, honestly. (laughs) If I were Emma, that's something legitimate to complain about. And so we have this verse four here, which is a really interesting response to her. They're withheld from thee and from the world, which is wisdom in me in a time to come. Now, you know, Emma always held that the work was the work of the Lord. She was amazed at what Joseph was able to do. You know, she says he he couldn't have dictated just a a letter, let alone, you know, this 500 page book. And so even though she didn't see the plates, she she saw them wrapped up. Right. I think she says that she actually moved them once. She might have uh, sort of touched them through cloth when she was cleaning once or something like that. I'd have to go back and look at the account. But but it's just so interesting here that. the Lord would command her not to, to murder. I, I guess this might have been a bit of a sore point between her and Joseph, the fact that that she couldn't see the plates. And that must have worn on him as well, too, right? That he's like, he he might not have understood. Why can't I show him to Emma? You know, she's faithful and and it wouldn't be a big deal to just be able to show her the plates and, and this would be resolved. So it's I think it's a good question to ask, and I'm not sure this section really even gives us that great of an answer. Yeah, I don't know either. I was thinking about the same thing as I was reading over this. But she's counseled in verse 5 to comfort her servant, you know, the Lord's servant Joseph Smith, thy husband, in his afflictions, with consoling words, in the spirit of meekness. And if we go back to the Beatitudes, you know, meekness is the third Beatitude, and it comes right after being poor in spirit and mourning. And when you look at Emma and everything that you just described, she's the one who's been there the most with Joseph, other than his family. She's the one who's been there the most. She's suffered the most. She's had uh, a, you know miscarriages. She's had these experiences already. She almost died with the with the one miscarriage that happened right when Joseph lost the manuscripts. Yeah, and she's already been through a lot. And just like what you said, because I thought the same thing about Mary Whitmer. Mary gets to see him. And Mary's only been involved for a couple of weeks. Why does she get to see him? And what, you know, what gives? And he starts to just having a lot of this compassion for who and what she is and what she's going through and maybe feeling like she's not worthy. Maybe feel like she, maybe she did something. Maybe she, maybe she wasn't um, adding up. And so when the Lord tells her that she's an elect lady who I've called, you know, that's got to be comforting. On many levels, but why? 
why wasn't she not allowed to to witness or to see these things as the wife of the prophet? And in going down into verse seven, uh, she's actually called to teach, which to have a woman minister, to have someone there to be able to teach, even in that time, ordained, in, yeah, ordained, even is is <laughs> that's very progressive. That's a trigger word. <laughs> very progressive, right? <laughs> to be ordained, even, and thou shalt be ordained under his hand to expound scriptures and to exhort the church according as it shall be given thee by my spirit. So not by dictation by anybody else, but God's going to lead her to what she should say and how she should be able to to do this. For he shall lay his hands upon thee, and thou shalt receive the Holy Ghost. And thy time shall be given to writing and to learning much. And thou needest not fear, for thy husband shall support thee in the church. You know, so this this whole bringing this this woman into the into the role of the church and ordained to be there to exhort the church and to expound on scripture. And now she's being called in to, to learn the scriptures with them because Joseph and Oliver, and they're being commanded to come in and to read scripture and to study the scriptures and to do these things. So she's kind of coming into the same conversation that Joseph and Oliver have been called into. And, and so in a lot of ways you can see Emma is wondering her place in this whole thing. Where does she fit in? And the Lord is very much giving her and opening up and creating spaces for not just her, but for for women in in the church and their place in the church to see who and what Emma was and to see how she is fitting into this narrative and opening up those spaces and kind of redefining narratives that existed in her day. You know, these are pretty pretty powerful scriptures and how and how they respond to their social environment that way. This is a revelation to Emma, but you know, probably one of the most striking parts of it is verse 16. It says, the last verse, Verily, really, I say unto you that this is my voice unto all. Amen. In other words, you know, this counsel and this way of being within the church is not just for Emma. Emma is sort of the, the type of that. The Lord's saying, hey, you may not feel like you have had all the experiences that you were supposed to have in order to to be on the level of of these other people, but you actually are just as important and valued and and have the same calling in terms of being able to ex, you know exhort uh, expound scriptures, exhort the church you're going to be ordained. You know all of these things pertain to you, and this is what I say unto everyone. You know these these types of roles. And uh, responsibilities within the church actually are to be uh, a part of of being a member of the church, uh, so that they belong to to everyone. And so there's there's quite a discussion to be had there. And I think not completely, uh, but uh, over over the course of the history of the church, um, there has been effort to make this a reality. You know, we've got the culture of, of the different callings in the church and. And trying to include everyone in sort of the the process of this teaching and expounding and exhorting and um, discussing scripture and a lot could be said about you know whether whether that has been inclusive enough, but it has happened. You know the the very fact that you know from an early stage there was this whole organization, the Relief Society for the Women. You know was was pretty progressive for the time. Now, again, we can have a discussion about whether that all went in the right direction and and really wasn't inclusive enough, uh, you know, fast enough. But 
we see from this section that that is what the Lord wanted. That was the will of the Lord for how the church was to be organized and operate. Yeah. So in in her calling there, we also see that in verse 11, she's the Lord asks her to, well, I'll just read it. And it shall be given unto thee also to make a selection of sacred hymns, as it shall be given unto thee, which is pleasing unto me to be had in my church. For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart, yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me. And it shall be answered with a blessing upon their head. You know, so this opens up a pretty interesting discussion. There's a, a really popular book in in academics about the the Second Great Awakening, and it's called the Democratization of American Christianity by a man by the name of Nathan Hatch. And you know, this book was written in in the latter end of the 1980s, uh, first of the 1990s. And what he does is he goes through and he documents how the early the second great awakening push was starting to was kind of a, a the democratization of christianity where these preachers as i was talking about before had started to go out into the frontier and there was very much from the bottom up swelling where they had started to kind of elect their own their own uh, preachers and this is where the tent revivals start but part of that whole process that uh, Hatch goes through and documents from several different factions, and he identifies the the Mormons as well. And part of that that de- democratization had to do with American print culture, and about how during this time, because of the Constitution and the freedom of the press, and and all of the pamphleteering that had happened that really sparked the American Revolution, and about how that that freedom of speech had really. Um, ignited this spirit and identity of republicanism and of Americana that these preachers were becoming successful in starting their own churches because of their ability to be able to print so much. (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. with, with Joseph Smith being able to print the book of Mormon in Palmyra because of Grandin, because they were right there against the Erie canal uh, from Emma printing a, a hymnal, so a lot of these religious factions, and because uh, Joseph and the church here was not the only church that started. I mean, these these new churches were springing up everywhere, and they were being successful because they were printing their own hymnals, they were printing their own, you know, frontier sermons, they were printing missionary tracts, yeah. yeah, their own tracts. So with Joseph being able to print the the Book of Revelation, the Book of Commandments, with his revelations, he's able to print this and disseminate this. This information, this is this is unknown in their world. This is very new, cutting edge stuff. You know, for us to be able to look back and like, oh yeah, Joseph wrote a book. That's awesome. Oh, he he publishes Revelations. Cool stuff. Oh, Emma was going to do hymns. Sweet. You know, for us, we don't think anything of it. I can print those things off my computer. My- had a website. <laughs> he had a website. <laughs> he had a website. No, so so this is very new. It's so very new. This is cutting edge for these people. And so for Emma to be able to collect hymns, this was a very quintessential element of starting your own religion and what they were doing at the time. And one of the popular ways to do that there on the frontier is that they would either write a poem or they would collect poems. And because there, nobody has pianos laying around, right? Nobody has organs that are randomly around. <laughs> Musical instruments are not, are not prolific. So what they would do is there would be popular tunes, little popular uh, songs that would come from England, you know, uh, folk songs and folk folk tunes, yeah, yeah, folk tunes. And then they would they would uh, basically in their hymnals they would just have the 
the poem and it would say on the top, sing to this folk song or sing to this, you know, folk song. So they'd have like a collection of different, so you could actually sing the same verse, but to like two or three different folk tunes. And so that's why, for instance, the, the popular Scottish bagpipe um, tune ends up coming into being the, the, the song for praise to the man. And so those kinds of things ended up coming into, uh, into how they were doing it. So when Emma was tasked with creating this hymnal, it had a, a lot of rich cultural discussion about the time and place by which this is happening. The fact that she could even do this was just magnificent because given you know maybe 50 years before this, it wouldn't have been a thing. Hmm. That's interesting. Some of those aspects I didn't didn't realize and know before. I mean, it all makes sense in context of of hymnal. Now, uh, look at the hymnal now, and it talks about you know the different hymns and stuff. But you know, not being uh, musically literate back in the day for the average person, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So right here, as we're as we're finishing up with uh, with section twenty five, continue in the spirit of meekness and beware of pride. This is verse 14. I really think that's a capstone there with the whole discussion because he's always, he's already asked her in verse five to, to endure in the spirit of meekness. And he brings it up a second time to continue in the spirit of meekness. You know, the meekness really is just this very quintessential beatitude virtue because it's what happens after you're always emptying. And man, for, for what they're about ready to do because of the social norms, everything that tells them this is the way things should be, and Joseph's life is not going to be that, for the Lord to come down and to counsel Emma and to say, listen, this is a great mercy and a grace. Consistently be meek. Work on this poverty of spirit you're going to mourn and you're going to become comfortable with mourning, but I will comfort you. And in this meekness, meekness in this context really has a lot to dealing with, uh, you know, like for instance, when Christ is shown in his temptation and Satan so shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you bow down to worship me, then I will give this to you. you know, our interpretation of Christ's rejection of that temptation is that Christ realizes that he's the one who made the world and the world is already his. And so why would he then subject himself to Satan's um, authority for something that's already his? But there's several scholars that actually talk about this differently in terms of the Beatitudes, because what happens is once we've emptied our ego and our attachment and that the world's identities and the need for power and control through those false identities that we have— and we've laid those to the side and we've taken complete reliance upon God and that poverty of spirit. So we've been stripped of our ego. We've been stripped of the false self. We've been stripped of that pride. When we have no more connection to the world and we only stand there as an entity of our true self, there's that mourning phase that we go through from that lost identity. And, and it happens all the time. It just whenever we, we lose those layers of identity, there's this mourning period that comes. But in meekness, we stand there disconnected from the world. You know, all, all of the plugs that the, the world wants to plug into us and, and all the plugs that we plug into the world. That, that's how we typically gain acceptance into the world is that, is that we have a story or an identity or something that plugs in somewhere and somebody else has a story and identity that plugs into us. And so it's like we plug into each other and that's how we have our earthly identities and our tribalisms. But part of being part of the poverty of spirit is letting all of those plugs that we plug into is, is, is taking all of those off, putting them to the side 
and just standing there in our universal true self with God. And in that particular case, it, it you know, kind of goes back to that Disney's, uh, the Incredibles <laughs> syndrome says, you know, when everybody's super, no one is. Yeah. But it, it's that same thing that why do the meek inherit the earth? It's because they realize that they, being being meek, they belong nowhere. And there's this universal paradox that applies that by being belonging nowhere, that suddenly you belong everywhere. You can go anywhere because you're not you're not plugged in by an earthly story to any one group of people. You are no you are no longer taking upon yourself the the identities of your nationalisms and your your groups and and all these things. Suddenly, you have taken on the universal identity of God, and in that, you belong nowhere in the world. The world doesn't recognize you anymore because you're not of them anymore. But now. You belong everywhere because you've tapped into the universality of God's identity. And so can, can you imagine with the Lord coming and, and, and counseling Emma to be meek because her life is not going to look like anyone else's life. Her life is not going to look like all, what the context of her and her and her place tells her is successful, just like Joseph and his family didn't have that either. And so for the Lord to tell her to be meek, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Not in a temporal way, because we we learned that Joseph and Emma never really end up having anything of their own. They have a little bit when they get to Nauvoo, but but even then, Joseph and Emma's home was kind of turned into a boarding house, and they they still didn't really even have much of their own place there. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, because they realize that by belonging nowhere, they suddenly belong everywhere. Emma's being counseled to take her identity to God. It, it, it's a beautiful counsel, especially for Emma and with Joseph there with, with the Lord counseling him beforehand to be patient in his afflictions because he's going to have many and to endure them. And then to turn around to Emma and to say to be meek because you have to empty from every all your preconceived notions about what you think this life is supposed to be because I have a different life in store for you. So be meek and accepting of what's about ready to happen. You know, that's interesting. That gives a little more meaning to that verse back in verse two, where he says, you know, I preserve thy life and thou shalt receive an inheritance in Zion. You know, that, that sort of touches on that, right? That that meek shall inherit the earth, that inheritance of Zion type thing. Yeah. And, and the saints, I don't know if the saints ever really understood that because the inheritance in Zion was always for them physical. It was always yeah. this thing in Missouri that they were going to go through and do. And so when Missouri fell apart, it was like they lost that inheritance in Zion. And, you know, I, there, there's definitely a physical component to this discussion, but they placed it as, as like the absolute primacy and not just the primacy, but like that was the discussion that, that it was the physical place. They were going to become physically prosperous. It was going to be a physically wealthy place to live. And none of that materialized. And so either God was, is really bad at foreseeing all of this which isn't the case, or their interpretation in ours in some cases needs to be refined a little bit. But yeah, I think that's a, a fantastic way of looking at that. That inheritance in Zion is going to definitely look like something different. Yeah, it does. So moving on to section 26 here, there's a couple, you know, verse one talks about one thing and then verse two talks about another. This is where we get the first introduction, so to speak, of this law of common consent I know a lot of people have actually uh, written and discussed a lot on this. 
I haven't discussed a whole lot on this concept here. Um, the way this law of common consent is explicitly practiced in the church is right when your uh, your bishop gets up there and says, "Hey, we've called these people. You know, raise your hand to sustain them and raise your hand to oppose them." Right. That's that's how we. <laughs> that's kind of how we do this, that. Nettos. This common consent thing. Right. That's that's how this is practiced. And if you. If you object, you know, then we'll talk about it. But it doesn't really mean anything if you object. <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of what the the implicit undercurrent of it is, right? You know, and and so sort of brings up this question: Well, what does this really mean then? You know, this this common consent, and and I think that there's more to the con the context here. You know, it's not just common consent. It says all things shall be done by common consent in the church by much prayer and faith. For all things you shall receive by faith. And that to me is is the part that's missing from a lot of the discussion that I've seen about this concept of, of common consent is that it's done by much prayer and faith. And the idea is that, you know, the the purpose is is to bring us into unity with each other and with Christ. And and so this is a method by which that is done. And and that should be the aim and the goal and the purpose of this is is to promote unity and 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 overcome any contention. So any any sort of um, methods that we can do that that promote that through it's as much prayer and faith. I think is is sort of what this concept is getting at. Yeah, I like that a lot. The verse one there, where the council, behold, I say unto you that you shall devote your time to studying the scriptures, to preaching and confirming the church in Colesville. And performing your labors on the land, such as is required, until you shall go into the West to hold the next conference, and then it shall be made known unto you what you shall do. You know, this really kind of summarizes everything we've been talking about, because they, they don't know what the next step is. Right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you go through and you made a church. All right, great. Now what? Now And you're going to go into the West. <laughs> go into Wait, the West. <laughs> so, yeah. And so, that, you know, that really sets us up for next week as we start getting into uh, sections 27 and 28. And and to see what those are going to be able to open up for us, because each one of these sections is going to be something new. We have to keep that in mind. This is all brand new for them. It's just, it, there's no context they have to anything else that we know about now. And so, as I said, Kirtland's not there for him yet. Missouri's not there for him yet. Nauvoo's not there for him yet. But they're going to start moving into these experiences. And so everything is going to be a documentation about how this has unfolded for them and how they're going to start experiencing this. And we're going to see really some fascinating things. But above all, one of the things I, I want to keep emphasizing is the mercy and the love of God and have how merciful and how patient and how grace and how full of grace he was towards each and every one of these, these people as they were bringing about the restoration of the gospel. Amen. Awesome. Well, until next week, thank you everyone for listening and for being a part of it. If uh, Let us drop us any messages that you had. I know there was a few people who had dropped in some messages uh, to us from our episode, uh, our previous two episodes. And so I, I, I've been really busy the last two weeks, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to be more prompt in responding to those. So thank you everybody for your patience. But until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for listening. 